Awesome. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here with you this morning. Um, my name is Mark, um, and I won't give a full rundown of myself. Uh, we can talk later if you like. But we are, if you haven't already worked out by now, we are talking about food and feasting today. So um, as the kids go and get their colouring at the back, and I, I want you guys to turn to the person next to you or behind you or whoever is convenient. I want you to let them know what your favourite food is, or if they already know that, what has been your most memorable meal that you can think of? Go for it for a second. All right, let me, uh, let me bring us back together again. I hate to interrupt good conversation that's happening around the place, but hopefully you've identified some favourite foods, memorable meals. Does anyone want to yell it out, kids included? What favourite foods? Give me some. Yes. Burritos. Who love Mexican? Yeah. Anyone else? Pizza. I love pizza too. One more. Maybe an adult. Favourite food? Roast pork. There we go. Hopefully that's roasting the oven right now. Ready for lunch? Yeah. <laughs> no. Anyway, it's, it is fascinating, isn't it, to think about food. I find it quite fascinating to think that God could have made the food just as fuel, and yet we, he has gifted us with the most amazing array of flavours. As an author who I'll mention a bit later on by the name of Tim Chester, uh, and he once said that the world is more delicious than it needs to be. I love that kind of idea. The world is more delicious than it needs to be. It, it's a gift of God's grace that he's given us this amazing array of flavours. Now, I'm not sure what my wife Jane said down here in terms of that conversation, but I know the answer for her is pretty simple. In terms of favourite food or most memorable meal or whatever it may be, uh, the answer is always... Um, I'm not sure whether that's working on the screen. Oh, yeah. The answer is always the Porter Lake Bakery. Uh, it's... A pasty and a chalky donut from the Port Elliot. But, oh, I can see a, a naysayer at the back. That's no good. Anyway, it's my story. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it anyway. Um, 
Fanta and meat pies, all right. So we've, well, for Jane, it's a pasty and a chalky donut. In fact, she calls this very eloquently her death meal. Uh, so this, she would love this to be her final meal on earth. So evidently, uh, if, if Jane's ever on her deathbed, I've got to do a two-hour round trip to Poitiers to pick up a pasty and a chalky donut from Poitiers. But anyway, uh, we're all different when it comes to food. Uh, but there's something unique about humans that we love food we love to interact with food we love to eat food we love to make food it's something very uniquely human about that now we've just come out of a season of lent in the lead up to easter and lent is traditionally a christian practice in which we give things up and most christian practices are a bit like that they require some level of commitment and intentionality from us Uh, so when we think about uh, confession, that requires a sense of courage, or, or prayer requires time and commitment. Almsgiving requires generosity. Fasting requires discipline. But the Christian practice of feasting, we don't need any encouragement at all, do we? It comes very naturally to us uh, when we think about that. And that's because there's something, like I said, very uniquely human about the way that we enjoy food, the way that we, prefer, the way that we prepare food. Now, we know that animals love their food, don't we? We know that. I know my dog loves food, but I've never seen my golden retriever Missy out in the backyard with a mortar and pestle combining spices to make a beautiful curry, right? She doesn't do that. She doesn't combine water and flour and sugar and salt uh, to make dough for bread. There is something very uniquely human about the way that we do that, about cooking, about creatively combining flavours and enjoying beautiful food that enables us to reflect the image of God in us in a very unique way. It's a tangible way that we get to cultivate God's creation, to take what God has created, to take what he's made and combine it into this beautiful thing called food. And food is so evocative, isn't it? I I would imagine in the stories perhaps that were shared earlier on that there's some special memories in your life that are attached to food in some way. Maybe it's somewhere you've travelled. Maybe it's people that you've spent time with something that you've tried for the first time that was absolutely exquisite or perhaps absolutely disgusting. Has anyone tried durian? You know what I'm talking about if you have. If you've travelled to Southeast Asia and tried that, you know what I'm talking about. But we have family traditions that revolve around food, recipes that are handed down from generation to generation. Seemingly every major family and cultural event that we have involves food. And clearly it's not just us here at Glen Osmond or us here in Australia. Food is universal language. The invitation to share food around a table is a profoundly meaningful one in every single culture around the world. The table where we get to share food is a very special place. Now, often when I'm presenting um, around the idea of vocation, so what it is that we do with our lives, I use a quote from a lady by the name of Dorothy Sayers. Now, Dorothy was around a number of decades ago, so this quote goes back some way. Uh, But she says something really important. Oh, Oh, there it is. I think it's just a little bit slow. There it is. She says something really important about tables. And she's speaking in the context of carpenters. And she says this about carpenters, that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to go to church on Sunday. So basically, just follow the rules. Don't get drunk 
and come to church on Sunday and then you'll be doing your job. But she goes on to say what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. This is one for Joe, who's just made these beautiful bench tops out the front of the church there. What the first demand is to make great tables. Now, that might seem a bit abstract, but here's the reason why making tables is such an important thing. And this is a quote from a, a man by the name of Siri, uh, Simon Carey Holt. Just a little bit slow. There it is. Oh. There's a bit of lag time. And it's... Coming up there, uh, Sari, Simon Carey Holt, who's a theologian and a professional chef, and so you kind of uniquely qualified to speak into this space, he says this, that it's through the daily practice of the table that we live a life worth living. Through the table, we know who we are. We know where we come from, what we value and believe. At the table, we learn what it means to be family and how to live in responsible, loving relationships. Through the table, we live our neighbourliness and citizenship, express our allegiance to particular places and communities and claim our sense of home and belonging. At the table, we celebrate beauty and express solidarity with those who are hungry and broken. It's a beautiful idea, isn't it? That, that the table is a deeply forming space. The practice of sharing a table together, of eating together, shapes us profoundly. So maybe the first thing to say as we talk about all of this this morning, even before we get to Jesus, is that we shouldn't underestimate the opportunity that we get to share a table with the people in our lives. Because sometimes food and mealtimes can just serve a utilitarian purpose. You know, we eat because we're hungry. We eat because we have to. Otherwise, we'll die. And that's true. But the table is so much more than that. Eating with each other, sharing a table together is a deeply forming experience. But it goes beyond that as well. Because eating around a table together, feasting as a Christian practice, is a deeply biblical concept. The author that I mentioned before is a a pastor in England, Tim Chester, who poses this really interesting question. And his question is this, how would you complete the following sentence? The Son of Man came, just turn to the person next to you, how would you finish that sentence? The Son of Man came, don't give it away. All right, I've heard some responses. Just wait, I've heard some responses. The first one is this. Oh, they came up together. I've given away the punchline. The Son of Man came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think I heard that one down here somewhere. The Son of Man came to seek and serve the lost. But equally importantly, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So there's three ways that the New Testament answers that question. And what Michael Frost, a um, a pastor and author from New South Wales, talks about is while the the first two up there, the very well-known verses, tell us something about the purpose and mission of Jesus in coming... The third describes his method. This is the way that Jesus went about it. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. But perhaps it shouldn't be a great surprise to us at all because throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people celebrating God's grace and his goodness with food. 
Significant events in the redemptive story of Israel were marked each year with festivals, and those festivals were all about eating and drinking together. God's people would stop and they would feast in recognition of God's gift of grace. And into that story steps Jesus as the central character. And what is it that he tells us that we should do every time that we meet together? There's a little hint at the front of the table here. We should eat and drink together. You know, one of the first things, or one of the, one of the things that Jesus was accused of was uh, in Luke chapter 7 of being a drunkard and a glutton. Now, Jesus was neither of those things, but obviously he spent enough time eating and drinking with all the wrong kinds of people uh, to give his detractors plenty of ammunition for that kind of comment. So in a beautifully subversive way, when this man who is accused of being a drunkard and a glutton gives his followers something to remember him by, he instructs them to eat and drink in remembrance of him. It's quite significant. So to feast, to come together and to eat together, to break bread together, is not just a forming experience. It's not just a way of recognising God's gift of grace and goodness. It is to walk in the very footsteps of Jesus himself. We shouldn't underestimate the opportunity that we get to eat and to drink together. And just a little glimpse into uh, the meals of Jesus recorded in the Gospels gives us a sense of the absolute centrality of these meals to Jesus' mission. Robert Karras, a, a biblical commentator, I love the way he puts this. He talks about the book of Luke and he says that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. It's so central the way that Jesus went about life. His missional strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. We heard about that down here on the beach. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with, with grilled fish and loaves of bread and pitchers of wine. The gospel are full of stories of Jesus eating with people. And meals weren't just a missional strategy. They are an actual vision of the kingdom. They represent something bigger, a new world, a different outlook on life. So the question for us this morning that I want to think about at a kind of a practical level is what does it mean for us to reframe the way that we think about eating and feasting so that the meal table becomes central to our gathering and our mission in life? That's a challenge for us this morning. How do we think about feasting, not just about eating, but as part of the mission that God calls us to? And to help us with that, I just want to go back to Tim Chester again, the English author. He wrote this beautiful little book a number of years ago now called A Meal with Jesus. And amongst a bunch of other things, he talks about the fact that the meal table, when we look at the way that Jesus went about eating with others, we see that the meal table becomes a place of enacted grace, of enacted community, of enacted hope, and of enacted mission. I just want to pick up each of those things very, very quickly. So I want to start with this idea of grace. How are our meal times a place of enacted grace? We can't underestimate the radical power of God's grace that's embodied in the meals of Jesus. You know, it's well documented that Jesus crossed all kinds of social and cultural boundaries and ate with all the wrong kinds of people. Like in Luke chapter 5, when, when Jesus is enjoying this great feast at the house of Levi the tax collector. 
And sometimes we can gloss over that, but tax collectors were, were not just social outcasts, they were treated as co-conspirators with the Romans at the time. They were seen as enemies of God himself. And yet here is Levi enjoying a feast at a party with God's Messiah. It's scandalous grace. And in the first century, mealtimes reinforced social conventions. Who you ate with, who you sat next to, your place at the table defined your social status. The whole mealtime was, the whole environment was crafted very carefully to put people in their place, if you like. But Jesus turns those social conventions on their head as an enactment of God's incredible grace and inclusivity. A number of years ago, I had the profound privilege of, of, of hearing live uh, a guy called Brian Stevenson speak. Now, Brian uh, is a lawyer who, who founded the Equal Justice Initiative in the south of America, who were committed to um, challenging racial injustice and mass incarceration, particularly amongst the African-American community in the south of the US, particularly working with those on death row. And he wrote this amazing book called Just Mercy, uh, which was turned into a film, actually. I think you can still find it on Netflix. Um, amazing story. But the talk that he gave uh, the day that I got to hear him was, was probably one of the most impactful messages that I've ever heard. And his opening salvo was really, really clear, and that is that we need to get proximate with those who are suffering. He said that there's power in proximity. Nothing changes unless we allow ourselves to get close. And he's right. Because we can't demonstrate grace to others at a distance, can we? It requires that we get close. And if we're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we need to allow ourselves to get proximate to those who are in desperate need of that grace. And what better place than at the table? Whether it be the hospitality of the church whether it be the hospitality in our homes, the challenge for us is, do our mealtimes, do our tables simply reinforce the social conventions of the day? Or are they places where we get to embody God's grace by allowing others to come close? Which leads beautifully on into this second idea, that meals are, yes, enacted grace, but they are places of enacted community. Meals inevitably bring us close to others. There, there is this beautiful scene in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is eating at the home of a Pharisee. And there's an uninvited woman, a sinner, who slips in unexpectedly to anoint Jesus' feet, first with her tears and then with ointment. Now, this sounds really strange in our 21st century context, but back in those days, in the first century, a meal like this where... A, a, quite a famous teacher like Jesus would end up at the house of a Pharisee. It would normally attract a crowd. Like, that doesn't happen at my house. I'm not sure about you. <laughs> normally, my mealtimes don't a, attract an outside crowd. But this is what would happen in the first century. People would come along, but, but normally they would stay at a distance. They would have to keep space for the people to do their bits and pieces inside, and they would stay outside. Uh, but on this day, this woman unexpectedly, uninvited, slips into the mealtime. But Jesus would have been quite within his rights to turn her away. Jesus doesn't turn her away or keep her at a distance. Instead, 
He draws her close and speaks with incredible intimacy. Reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, he allows this woman to come close. And for me, this is a little reminder that it is so easy for us to keep people at a distance, isn't it? It's easy to keep people at a distance in our city, in our workplaces, even at church sometimes. But it's almost impossible to keep people at a distance when we share a table with them, isn't it? The table is a place where we can come close with others. Because mealtimes involve welcoming, of creating space, of giving attention, of listening, of providing. Mealtimes slow us down. They force us to be people-oriented rather than task-oriented. Michael Frost says this, the table is the great equaliser in relationships. When we eat together, we discover the inherent humanity of all people. We share stories and hopes and fears and disappointments. Now, I am sure that eating together is not the only way to build relationships and create community. But I reckon it has to be number one on the list, doesn't it? Our mealtime, sharing food together, eating together, the Christian practice of feasting is a way that we get to enact the kind of community that God is calling us to. And the third thing that was on that list was that meals are enacted hope. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah declared this, that on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And this concept became known as the Messianic Feast. It was an expectation a profound hope, a time when death would be defeated, when the world would be put right, when we would experience the fullness of God's coming world, the coming of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God represented as a feast, sharing a table together, seemingly with the best marbled Wagyu steak and Penfolds Grange that you can possibly imagine. That's what it's supposed to be like. That's the vision of this coming world. And the biblical story gives us a whole bunch of other glimpses, of course. You know, there's the feeding of the 5,000. There's the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, where invitations go out to all the most unexpected people. But the point of all of those stories in the biblical, uh, in Scripture, is the same. That meals are an enactment of the hope that we have. They're a little glimpse, a, a little foretaste, if you like, of God's future. A simple expression of God's kingdom on earth right now as it is in heaven. And so when we as the church share with those that are in need, when we gather together like we're doing this morning in community, around the table, eating scones together, sharing the bread and wine a little bit later on, we're giving the world a little glimpse of God's coming kingdom in our world right here, right now. We become a little signpost to God's flourishing life, a new way of living, a restored community. Our meals are a little glimpse of God's messianic banquet. They are a right here, right now glimpse, a demonstration of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Mealtimes are enacted hope. 
And last but not least, so we've had enacted grace, enacted community, enacted hope, and last but not least, mealtimes, feasting together can be enacted mission. And this point, I think, is illustrated quite beautifully in uh, an upside-down way in this movie from... I went back, I think it was the year 2000, so I'm showing my age here now. The year 2000, this movie came out with with Johnny Depp, a beautiful movie called Chocolat. Um, But I think it is actually a beautiful illustration of what we're talking about here. So the story is set around Viviane, there on the right-hand side with Johnny, um, who floats into a very grey village uh, in France wearing a bold red cloak and, and, and has the audacity to open up a chocolate shop during the time of Lent. Uh, And understandably, this is scandalous and certainly upsets a very serious and religious community and particularly upsets a very serious and soulless mayor uh, who has taken it upon himself to actually write the sermons for the local priest, like he controls the town. And the church itself is legalistic and lifeless. And the church stands in stark contrast to the colour and the life and the flavour of this new chocolate shop which is coming to town. And over the course of the movie, it's quite interesting, but it's the chocolate shop and not the lifeless church that becomes a refuge for the abused and the outcasts and the curious. And there's this scene towards the end of the movie that's absolutely beautiful where this eclectic group of people from all over the village and outside of the village share a feast together. It's a picture of grace. It's a a vision of community, of belonging, of life. And ultimately, it's a picture of mission. And if you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, but you'll eventually... If you haven't seen the last 23 years, there shouldn't be any spoilers, but... You'll be pleased to know that eventually... The whole town is won over, including the lifeless man himself. They're all won over by the hospitality of Vivienne. And finally, the message of grace rings out from the pulpit. But for me, I think it's a beautiful illustration that hospitality has a powerful missional quality. Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't create programs. He didn't even put on events. What did Jesus do? He ate meals. He shared tables with people. He practiced missional feasting. Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford tell us this, that sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful kind of idea, isn't it? That actually... The mealtime, eating together around a table, is a powerful demonstration of the kingdom of God and one that we get to invite others into. So as we close and as the, we come to a time where we share a table together and then we eat together afterwards, it's fair to say that we don't need any encouragement to feast. You're not going to need any encouragement to eat those scones after church this morning. That's the easy part. But we can be intentional. We can be deliberate about the way that we eat and who we eat with. So may our tables be places where God's gift of delicious food is celebrated. May they be places where our lives are shared and formed. 
May there be places of grace and inclusion and community. May they be places of mission. And may they be places of resurrection life as we signpost God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for the gift of food. We thank you for how delicious the world is. We thank you that it's a little reminder of your goodness to us. But so much more than that, we thank you that you've given us the table, the, the chance to eat together, to practice community together. And as we do that, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, I just pray that you will help us to, to be intentional about the way that we use our tables, the way that we do celebrate together, uh, so that we can be communities, wherever you place us, whether it's here at church, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our workplaces, or in the community. May we meet together as people who who have a profound sense of hope, who have a profound understanding of what grace is, the way that grace has been shown to us and how you're calling us to show it to others. May we give the world around us a little glimpse of what your kingdom is like so that we can invite others into that space as well. We just pray for opportunities and we thank you that you don't leave us alone in this, that you gift us with your Holy Spirit to empower us to go about mission with you. So we thank you for our time together. We thank you that you're at work in and through us all the time. And we commit all of these things to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.